So last night, I didn't get to bed till about two o'clock in the morning, which is not usual for me. Usually I'm about midnight on a Saturday night. I'm a last minute guy studying and preparing and lots of history to read for the book of Daniel, lots of context to get. But some chapters, it's like you're wrestling with the Bible and you're wrestling with God, not in a bad way, just saying, okay, Lord, what's the gist? What are you trying to say to your church right now? And so I was just wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with that and went to bed about 1.30. And then the Lord gave me a, sort of a thought about the chapter. And that's what I'm going to share with you this morning. Got back up, wrote that down and kind of put it all together. So for a title for Daniel 5, this is what I titled it. It's all good until it's not. So we've been learning about pride, but we're going to learn a little bit about and talk a little bit about willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. What is willful ignorance? Biblical dictionary definition, a decision in bad faith to avoid becoming informed about something so as to avoid having to make undesirable decisions that such information might prompt. In other words, I keep certain information out of my life because if I let it in, I would have to respond to it. So I choose to ignore. That's the root word of ignorance is to ignore. I choose to purposely ignore and remain ignorant to information that might cause me to change or to have to make a choice if I responded to it. The simple way we understand that is in the area of nutrition and diet. Maybe you've been to the doctor and maybe the doctor said, oh, you know, your cholesterol's creeping up and your blood pressure's not what it should be. You really need to get your diet under control. You need to really think about what you're eating. You need to read labels. But then something happens and you just decide, man, you need a good old fashioned binger, sweet fest, like get the ice cream cartons out. And at that moment, when I'm just looking for pleasure, I don't want to know what the label says. Does anybody with me in that? I know it's full of sugar and fat, and that's exactly what I want. So I'm not looking at the label. I don't care about the label. Don't tell me about the label because I want to eat and I want to feel good about it. And if you tell me what's in it, I'm going to feel bad about it and you're going to rain on my parade. Do you see that's an example of sort of willful ignorance? I'm not reading the label because if I read the label, then I'm going to have to make a choice to put this back and make a healthier choice. And that's all fine and well if we're talking about food and diet and nutrition. But what about spiritual things? What about eternal things? Can people choose to be, will people choose to be willingly ignorant about spiritual things, about these big matters? Well, I really got the term as I was thinking this through and relating it to Daniel 5. The Lord brought my mind to 2 Peter chapter 3. So if you've got that marked, turn there now. I'll pick up in verse 3. Peter writes, knowing this first, and it's sort of in the middle of a sentence, so forgive me, but knowing this first, that scoffers, mockers, will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, this is the rhetoric, where is the promise of his coming? You guys talk about Jesus coming. Well, it's not happened. You guys have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back, and he's not coming. And this is the rest of the rhetoric, so that the mockers are saying, ah, Jesus isn't coming back. Where's the promise? And here's the rest of the story. For since the fathers fell asleep, the ancestors, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that's the end quote. That's the rhetoric. That's what's being said. And Peter says, verse 5, for this they... What does your Bible say there? Willfully forget. Anybody have a King James? I think it says willingly are ignorant. 
I don't have to be willful to forget. It comes naturally, especially as I'm getting older and older. I don't have to will to forget, but I have to will not to remember. And that's what Peter's talking about. They willfully are ignorant. They choose to ignore. What are they choosing to ignore? As they say, oh, life is just going to continue to go on. One generation comes, another generation goes. Things are just going to continue on as they always have been. What are they choosing to forget? They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Don't get bogged down by that. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They willfully forget that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, and then he brought judgment in Genesis. There was the judgment, the flood, the great flood. He destroyed what he had created. Life did not go on from creation until their time, until our time. There was an event called the worldwide flood of judgment that God brought onto planet earth. So they're choosing to ignore that little tidbit of information about creation and judgment. And then he says, Verse seven, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. So what's preserving our world right now? I mean, things feel like they're coming undone. It could get worse. But God in his mercy and his love is sustaining everything by his word. Isn't that amazing? The power of God's word. He speaks it. He says, light be and light is. His power is in his word. So the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire. You think global warming is a joke. God's got his version of global warming. Reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So Peter reminds them that things in the past, people will choose to forget or choose to rewrite the story of history to write out God's creation and to write out a past judgment because the rhetoric now is, And I've been in pastor's meetings where the conversation among pastors is, we don't believe hell exists. And Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven. He doesn't want you to go there. But that's the agenda. That's the rhetoric. And it's a willing ignorance. They know, but they don't want to know. Let me give you another example. I want you to think about Jesus and Jesus's style of teaching. Jesus was the best Bible teacher ever. He taught so simply and he used illustrations that we call parables. He used parables. Now, you'd think that it would be the easy thing for Jesus to just say it like it is. I mean, Jesus, just tell us. Why do you put it in stories? And why do you make us understand what the story is about? This means that, and this means this. Just tell us plainly. In Matthew 13, 10, the disciples come to Jesus after he tells them the parable of the four soils. And they come up and they say to him in Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. To you who? To you that came to ask about them, to ask what things mean. He says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Whoever has, has what? Has a desire to know, has a desire to be informed and not ignorant. James tells us God gives his wisdom liberally to anybody that asks. And then he follows this up, Jesus does, with a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So what that's reflecting is what we would call, what we're calling this morning is willful ignorance. 
A person hears, but they don't want to hear. So they refuse to hear. A person sees, but they don't want to see. A person understands, but they don't want to understand because it's an inconvenient truth that would cause the life change. And if Jesus taught them plainly, instead of in parables, what parables does is it allows them to preserve the right, the freedom to willful ignorance. Jesus will not force truth on anybody, but he gives you the information and people have the choice to accept it or to turn away from it. Two quick quotes, and then we'll see how this ties into Belshazzar. Plato said, we can easily forgive a child who's afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. Another author named Ayn Rand said, the hardest thing to explain is the glaringly evident, which everybody has decided not to see. So these truths of God that we talk about, our world, we understand. There are those that choose to rewrite the story, willfully ignorant about the things of God. Belshazzar is that kind of guy. Our chapter five begins in verse one with Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, wait a second. We left off with a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who was king at the end of chapter four, and he had this humbling revelation after walking on his little patio and his deck of his palace. He looks over things. He says, oh, look at the kingdom that I've built. And he was ignorant of the fact that God had put him there and provided everything for him to be the emperor and that God rules. God takes him to the seminary of the pasture and he ends up eating grass like an ox. And because of that, for seven years, then he goes through that and he has this seemingly amazing revelation. And some would argue he becomes a monotheist, believing in the one and only true and living God. That's a matter debated by scholars. We'll find out when we get there. But whatever the case may be, I think if my numbers are right, he continues to reign about 10 years after his experience with insanity. He writes the declaration that the whole world needs to know about the most high God whose judgments are right and, and who rules in the kingdoms of men. He rules 10 more years. He dies in 562 BC after a very lengthy reign. And then Babylon sort of stumbles into a period of somewhat anarchy, a lot of political unrest. So we have a gap from 562 to the time of this chapter is about 23 years. Chapter four to chapter five, about a 23 year or more span. And in that period of time, the next ruler after Nebuchadnezzar, I'm gonna briefly run you through this, is a guy whose name I think is so interesting. His name is Evil Merodach. Evil Merodach. Imagine as a toddler sending him to preschool. Your son's name, please, uh, Evil. <laughs> Oh, look at that. We're full today. <laughs> There's a nice preschool down the road for your little evil there. Evil Merodach. He reigns two years. He gets assassinated by the next guy named Neraglisser. This guy was a military commander who helped Nebuchadnezzar besiege Jerusalem and then married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So he's a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. He reigns for four years. I think he dies of natural causes. Then Labashi Marduk. Again, if you're looking for creative names, is my son, Lambashi Marduk. He was the son of Nereglisser and another one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. This guy, he rules young. He's young when he starts to take over the kingdom there. And he is certifiably crazy. And he is beaten to death in a coup by the cabinet. Basically, the military and the officials decide to torture him to death. And then they appoint one of the guys who was in that coup, a guy named Nabonidus, 
to be the emperor. And he is, Nabonidus is the last emperor of the Neo-Babylonian Empire after him. It's taken over by Cyrus the Great, the Medes and Persian Empire, the head of gold. Remember that? Yields to the chest and arms of silver. Wonderful. Let me tell you a little bit about Nabonidus, just because it's interesting. He's really credited with being the first archaeologist. This sort of attaches to our story. In restoring some of the walls and buildings around Babylon, he discovers an ancient temple to the moon god. And he gets real intrigued that he's discovered this, and he develops this fascination with Sin, the moon god. So he goes all over Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula, rebuilding doing archaeological digs. He's got his little Indiana Jones outfit on and his little whip and all that. And he goes out and he decides to rebuild all of these temples to the moon god named Sin. And that's his primary worship. Now, remember, the Babylonians and Babylon was overseen and protected by the patron god, do you remember? Marduk. So this creates tremendous amount of tension in the kingdom. The people are sort of worshiping Marduk, but now the new leader has a different religion. Not only that, he decides to up and go on these excavations and be Indiana Jones for 10 years. So who's running the kingdom while he's gone? Remember, history had for a long time nothing about anybody named Belshazzar. I'll come back to that. So Nabonidus, while he's out doing his excavating and rebuilding temples, he puts his son Belshazzar in charge of things in the city. Now, the reason that's interesting is because for 2,500 years, for 2,500 years, the only record of a king of Babylon named Belshazzar was in the Bible, book of Daniel. And scholars would hammer on the book of Daniel that it can't be trustworthy. It's talking about a king named Belshazzar. There was no such king until the archaeologists discovered what's called the Nabonidus Cylinder, which clearly talks about Nabonidus putting his son Belshazzar in charge. Look, if there's something that people are arguing with you about the Bible, just give it time. Just give it time. And if it's not on earth, they'll get it after that. So that's the background of how we get to Belshazzar in chapter five. That's a long way around the barn. Verse one again, Belshazzar, the king, now you know the story. He made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine... That seemed to be the initiation of the party. The king tastes the wine and everybody starts to drink. Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels. About over 4,000 gold vessels were captured by the Babylonians from Jerusalem. You can read that in the book of Ezra. So they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised, celebrated, really, gave honor to the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. They gave credit to all of the things of their own creation, all these idols, all these false gods. So the first thing I see is, and I'll have to explain this a little bit, Belshazzar is willfully ignorant of his own vulnerability. He is living the party life. Now, you probably know somebody who's living the party life. Life is just a big party. He's got the shirt on that says, keep calm and party on. And some people, they just all they're looking for is the next high or the next drunk 
or the next fling or the next party. That was Belshazzar. He didn't fight for the stuff that he's got. He's got the entitlement thing going on. He's been handed all this stuff, been handed the kingdom, and now he's just living large, as it were. He's the center of attention. He's the party animal. And what he's ignoring willfully is that inside, they're having this big party. It's his birthday, by the way, just in case you want to know. It's a birthday party. He's got a thousand of his government officials there to celebrate his birthday, and they are living it up and drinking it up. And there's concubines there. There's only one purpose to have concubines there. There is sexuality going on. There's sexual immorality. There's drinking. It's a frat party gone wrong for sure. Meanwhile, on the outside, let me back up a little bit. Now, hang with me so far. So remember, Nabonidus, he's out being Indiana Jones. Belshazzar, his entitled son, who's probably in his 40s at this time, was in charge of running things. Well, Cyrus the Great, you'll read about him in coming chapters. He's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, the next empire in our list. And he is gaining strength. And he's actually gaining popularity because he's promising to restore the worship of Marduk to Babylon. And they're kind of liking this choice. They actually celebrate when he conquers Babylon. They're actually happy. They welcome him in. But he sends an ambassador to Nabonidus, who's not there, And it's in the middle of one of Belshazzar's wild parties. And the ambassador comes with a message that says, hey, either surrender to us or else. And Belshazzar decides in a drunken state to hack this guy up into pieces, send him back to Cyrus saying, no, don't think so. So when Cyrus gets the message and oh, he got the message, the ambassador hacked up into pieces. You think he takes that well? Probably a little bit angry. This is the arrogance of Belshazzar. He dispatches Darius, who's kind of the commander of the Navy SEALs, dispatches Darius and the small team to begin sieging Babylon. The night that they're partying inside, outside, the troops of Darius, the Mede, who's in charge, Darius is captain of the SEALs. They're there ready to begin the siege of Babylon. Turns out to be a lot easier than they expected. So meanwhile, inside, they think, Life just goes on. We're impervious. Our walls are thick. Our city's secure. Ah, who cares? Let's party. He's willfully ignorant of his own vulnerability. By the way, back to the party. Did you notice the problem that God points out is not that he's having a party. That's not a new thing. That's a common thing. But what does he choose to do in the middle of that party? He says, hey, somebody go get the vessels of that God of the Jews who we conquered. Remember, it's God against God. If our God can conquer your God and we can conquer you, then we take your God's stuff and we bring it to our God's temple. So the stuff was probably in the temple of Marduk as an offering of Marduk's greatness and their greatness. So, oh, go get all the gold stuff. And they are partying with the stuff of God, even though they have possession of it. Who's got ownership? It never stopped being God's. It's always been God's. Do we possess planet Earth? God's given us reign over it, dominion over it. But whose is it? It's his planet. All the heavens and earth are God's. He holds the universe, the span of his hand. And we forget or willingly ignore the fact that God owns planet Earth. He decides what happens to it. So he takes these things that belong to God and he uses them. It's not just lack of reverence, but a complete mockery of God. Complete and utter mockery. They go get those things of the Jews because the Jewish God is a joke. 
And it's like an in-your-face to God. Do you see that? And that's when God stepped in and says, okay, just like when Nebuchadnezzar was walking on his palace, made that proud statement, the, did I say that out loud thing? Now, at the same time, now God is going to step in. And by the way, just by way of application, we talk about these vessels, these things that were dedicated to God, these holy vessels to drink out of, to eat out of. They're dedicated to God. They're his vessels. Do you know the Bible speaks of us that way? Do you know the Bible speaks of you as a vessel? Paul says that to the Thessalonians, to know how to possess your vessel. This body is a vessel that contains the spirit of God. This is not just skin and bone. It is, but it's more than that. And Paul also says to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. First Corinthians 6, Paul reminds the Corinthians, because of sexual immorality, because of a disregard for the things of the body, all that matters is what I think or my heart. My body doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want with my body. Paul says, be careful. It's not just your brain or your Sunday morning hour and a half that belong to God. It's your body. And he says, therefore, glorify God with your body. When you take the vessel, the thing that belongs to God, and you begin to use it for your own purposes and your own pleasure, God may choose to step in and say, well, you're not going to use those things. That's mine. So the question is, who owns your body? Have you ever thought about that? It's a matter of ownership. And depending on how you answer that question will determine a lot about how you live your life. Who owns me? We have willingly given ownership of our bodies to God. We've said our life is not our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore, we as Christians have an opportunity to glorify God in our bodies. So just a small segue, a small comparison application. So verse five, in the same hour, they're parting it up with the things of God. It's like taking the communion elements and getting drunk at the communion table. What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, which again is a bad thing there in 1 Corinthians. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Talk about a freaky He's looking at his goblet going, what is in that that I just drank? Did someone spike my drink? What is going on here? Someone put something in here? Um, he's rubbing his eyes going, is this a hallucination? What's going on? But he sees a hand, like a disembodied hand, writing on the plaster of the wall. And it freaks him out. Verse 6, the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened. Some say that could even be a reference to he went to the bathroom on himself and his knees knocked against each other. This is where we get the saying, the handwriting is on the wall. There's an inevitable doom coming and it's just a matter of time till we get there. Do you get a sense as you look around the world now? I think this is what's unnerving people in general. We get a sense as we look around the world, as much as we want to ignore it, that things can't go on this way forever. Resources, relationships, kingdoms, economics, we just can't go on this way forever. And we know it, but we try to ignore it. That at some point, God is going to step in. Look, the handwriting's on the wall. I mean, we look around our world. How long can we go on this way? Till we just run out of resources. Till we just start destroying each other. This is Genesis chapter 6 all over again. Even the thoughts and intents of man's heart were evil from their foundation. How long can things go on this way? 
and God steps in and he puts the handwriting on the wall. Man, talk about the party sobering up. You ever been maybe in your BC dates, been to a party like that? The police show up or someone gets hurt. Someone does something stupid. Hey, watch me jump out the second story window. I was a bouncer in bars for years. I have seen some stuff and I've seen how fast people sober up when something bad happens. Remember, it's all good until when? Until it's not. Verse seven, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. The king spoke saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Notice the accuracy of the book of Daniel, by the way. He says he shall be the third ruler, one of the rewards for the person that can read and tell him what it means. Because it's not just a sentence. Like in my little teaser, I sent the little cartoon that said, the handwriting said, the party is over. Well, we can read that. In the actual writing, it's more cryptic. It's more enigmatic. It's more like a puzzle or something challenging that way. But the reward for that is going to be to be elevated into the kingdom, not to second ruler, but to third. Why? Nabonidus, the king who's out, Indiana Jones, he's first ruler. His son, Belshazzar, is second ruler. So whoever gets elevated, the highest they can go is third ruler. So the word of God, always accurate about those things. So this is what he promises. Call in the big guys. Can you read it? Can you tell me? We've been over this ground before. They're never able to produce. When it really comes down to it, they're superstitious. They have a lot of education, but don't know really about spiritual things. And they have a false religion that really can't offer answers. And yet in his willful ignorance, Belshazzar turns to them, knowing that they really can't provide the answers that he needs. And we see that to be true. Look at verse eight. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, terrified. His countenance was changed. Man, his face he no longer had his party face on. He had his pouty face on. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. So word evidently travels about the birthday party gone bad and about what has happened at the birthday party. The music has stopped and people are filtering out. And the queen, by the way, this is probably the queen mother, the widowed wife of Nebuchadnezzar. She gets wind of what's going on late at night and she gets dressed, comes over to the party. Verse 10 says, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, she came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke saying, oh, king, live forever. Kind of an ironic thing to state on the night he's going to be killed. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom of all the Jews that were there, all the Jews taken captivity. This one man stands out. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Look, I've been to pastor's meetings and I've sat around in circles and pastors, pastors are a weird bunch. Am I telling you something you don't already know? We're a weird bunch. I mean, we got problems. But I'll sit with a group of pastors and talking about how are we going to get God's people to do what they're supposed to do? And we got to have programs and we should do this. And why won't people just do what they're supposed to do? And all this fabricating and all this talking about how to get people to do what they're supposed to do. I mean, I preach it and I pound it home and I say it louder and I say it more and I repeat it. And I say, what about the Holy Spirit? Oh, we hadn't thought about that. 
See, we live in a time in, in the church where even the things of God have been relegated to really what human beings can produce. Really, we have church, but it's oftentimes man-centered religion. If you take the spirit of God and the power of the word of God out, what do you have left? You got a form of religion, a form of godliness with no power. Daniel had real power. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. No different than Elijah or Elisha or you or me. And that should produce a different kind of life. Don't you think? What are we doing looking at the world, trying to figure out how to do church? What business do God's people have getting their cues from how the world operates to go, oh, well, maybe we need to adopt a business model for the church. We're not a business. We're a family. That's God's model. And we are a family, children of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is noticeable in him. There's a man in your kingdom. And in him, he's unique. He's different because the spirit of the holy God. What does an unholy spirit produce? If someone has in them an unholy spirit, what would that produce? Unholiness. So what should a holy spirit produce in a person's life? Should produce holiness. That doesn't mean perfection. None of us are going to be perfect. But what it produces, the word holy is just set apart for God's use. Set apart for the things of God. My life, my actions, the spirit of God wants to produce in you holiness. It's not your job to produce it. Stop trying. It's God's job. He said, step back. Give me the driver's seat. I'll take over. I'll produce holiness. All you have to do is cooperate and yield. All you have to do is submit. I'll do the rest. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, actually, it's his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Would people say that about you at work? The days we live in, would you agree? I mean, be honest. Dark, confusing, and foolishness are the order of the day. Would you agree with that? All you have to do is turn on the news and see darkness, foolishness, and confusion are the order of the day. And in those days, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, they might not have wanted anything to do with you for a long time. But now may be the time when they want someone. They need someone who understands, tell me about this God of love. What's that cross? I mean, I got a cross. What's that all about? You'd be surprised. People don't naturally know about God. I mean, they naturally know about God. They choose to forget. They look at the trees. and They say, well, this must have come from somewhere. But the cross and the general truths we take for granted, people aren't growing up learning that stuff anymore. The cross is just a pendant. Oh, you got one with a little man on it. You got something in gold, something in silver. It's a piece of jewelry. People don't know. So Daniel... This is his reputation, light, wisdom, and understanding, like the wisdom of the gods found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, I think she's pointing her finger at him. She's probably poking him in the chest. Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Now, I think she says that because I think Belshazzar completely and utterly ignored Daniel, had no use for him. Daniel's now in his 80s. He's lived a little bit. He's ministered to Nebuchadnezzar in really important ways. But over time, over the passing of 20-some years, Daniel's in the dugout. He's a relief pitcher now. He's not the go-to guy. He's not the strong arm that he was with Nebuchadnezzar. 
Verse 12 says, Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, she calls him by his Hebrew name, and he will give the interpretation. So I think Daniel stands out as the opposite of willful ignorance, doesn't he? He's a man of humble faith. And because of that, he's known for wisdom, enlightenment, and understanding, and all these things. Did you notice that she has to tell him to call for Daniel? Why? Daniel's not at the party. Now, maybe because he's like, "Ah, I'm too old for this. You guys go ahead, have fun. I don't think so. This is the kid, the teenager, who wouldn't drink the king's wine or eat the king's delicacies. He had conviction. And I'm sure that's not gotten weaker over time in Daniel. I think it's gotten stronger. So they're partying it up, and Daniel's not invited to the party. And it pains my heart to see today, especially young people, they look at the world, and they've grown up in a Christian home, and they feel like, well, I'm missing out. Everybody's having so much fun. Oh, the world is passing me by. They're experiencing this, and they're experiencing that. And hey, the party ends. But the party we're going to be part of hasn't yet begun. We dwell on this earth for a time, having to suffer some for our faith, looking forward to a never-ending party. Jesus said at the Last Supper, I won't partake of this cup, the wine, again with you until when? We drink it together in the kingdom. We are going to celebrate with our king, Jesus Christ. And I don't want to miss that party. I'm okay missing some parties here on earth. There's some parties I wish I had missed. So it seems like the world's having fun and it's passing you by. You're missing out. Why? Because it's all good. Until when? Until it's not. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah? You're just a slave. You're just a captive. I think it's demeaning. Who my father, the king brought from Judah. Underline this. Verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, my go-to guys have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. Verse 16, and I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar, willfully ignorant of godly resources at his disposal. Daniel was always there, but I think completely ignored by Belshazzar. And I think we get that. We understand how that works sometimes in our lives. Resources for the world are right there. Now, not everywhere. Belshazzar had Daniel, valued by his grandfather, I'm thinking, if I got a Daniel and I'm a king, I want Daniel right by my side. I'm going, Daniel, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think, Daniel? You seem to be in touch with God. What do you think? But completely ignored. So he's willfully ignorant of godly resources that God had given him. God had not left him without a witness. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, ah, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Keep your money keep your gold fancy change, keep your purple robe. At 80 years old, and even before that, Daniel's beyond that. I don't need to be impressing people with that fancy stuff, but I'll tell you anyway what the thing means. Verse 18, O king, here's where the lecture starts. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, 
glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, again, I think he's wagging his finger. Belshazzar, it's an old guy talking to a young guy. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom, majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, before Nebuchadnezzar. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, he put down. God gave tremendous power and sovereignty, earthly sovereignty to Nebuchadnezzar. And you need to know that, Belshazzar. But, uh, you always worry when you see that word. But when his heart was lifted up, learn the lesson, Belshazzar. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, when he refused to listen anymore, when he was so proud, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. You are not promised your glory. You don't own it. It doesn't belong to you. You're not entitled to it. It's a gift. And it's a gift given for and in company with submission and humility. I didn't write it. This is the way of God. He elevates the humble and he takes the proud and he knocks them down. And sometimes it's tough because we watch the wicked prosper, don't we? Asaph struggled with that in the Psalms. Why did the wicked prosper? And we see wicked people prospering. Why is that? If God puts down the proud, why isn't he doing that more? And it can really be discouraging and discomfitting to us. But Asaph says, then I went to the house of God and I remembered their end. Partied up on planet earth. Live with your power. Exert your power. Exert your influence. Enjoy it while you got it because it's the last time that you'll have it. Because once you pass into eternity, then you will be forced to see. I think the most challenging part of hell will be regret that I knew willful ignorance, I think will be the greatest regret of eternity alone, apart from God, apart from love, apart from light, apart from everything, knowing that the information was right there for you and you ignored it. You ever experienced regret? Oh, painful, isn't it? I think that's going to be one of the parts of hell that's challenging or difficult to live with eternally. Ravi Zacharias said the only thing worse than nostalgia is amnesia. Looking back longingly is one thing. Oh, remember the good old days? Remember the past? But to forget altogether, which is Belshazzar's problem, he says, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit hardened pride, he was deposed. Verse 21, then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. What a lecture. Willfully ignorant that God works in individuals and God works in empires. You think he didn't have access to his grandfather's testimony of God's work in his life? You think he didn't know what had happened and with the experience that Nebuchadnezzar had to change the whole kingdom under his rule? But instead of the testimony, instead of the documentation, he chose to ignore and exert his own will above that of God. It's all good until it's not. Verse 22, and this is where the gist of willful ignorance comes from. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. He wasn't ignorant of it. He was willfully ignorant of it. I think of the queen of Sheba, and Jesus brings this as an example to the people that lived in Jesus' day. The queen of Sheba heard about the greatness of Solomon. And she said, you know, I want to check it out for myself. 
So she traveled 1,000 miles to see it for her own eyes. She says it wasn't the half of what I'd been told. And people choose to be, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to God, oh, the Bible's just full of inconsistencies and contradictions. Oh, really? Have you read it? No. Willful ignorance. The Bible is the greatest selling book of all time. Even if you just read it for literary purposes, it's a beautiful literature. But it's way more than that. Everybody should read the Bible. Everybody should read the Bible. Because when you read it, you are confronted with the great truths about you and God and life and death and eternity and purpose and meaning and creation and all that. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You knew it and you still did it. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought vessels of his house before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines. You have drunk for wine from all of them. You made the whole thing a big joke. You thought God was a joke. You thought life was a party. And now the party is over. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. They look like us. They have ears and eyes and a nose and a mouth. They're less than us. You worship something less than yourself. And you're celebrating them. But meanwhile, and I add that word, meanwhile, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. What an underlining verse for today. The God who holds your breath in his hand. Paul would say the same thing in Athens to the Athenian philosophers in his speech in Athens on the Oropagus. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in the temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. That's a humbling truth. And then he says, the fingers of the hand were sent from him in response to this, and the writing was written. Verse 25, and this is the inscription that was written. Now we finally get down to what the handwriting was. Mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. And before we get there, I'll give you just the brief Aramaic words. But evidently, they couldn't see them or they couldn't read them. Mene, mene is mina, mina. These are denominations of money. So a mina is a unit of money, a counted unit of money. A tekel is the same as a shekel, transliterated to shekel. That is a weight of monetary value, like 50 shekels or pounds of silver or gold. You is the connecting word, and farsin is the plural of the word perez, which is a half a mina. So if you could read this, the first mene would be actually probably read as a verb. The verb means counted. So what would be on the wall would be counted, mina, shekel, and a half mina. Okay, wonderful. What in the world does that mean? You see why it needed interpretation. It's a puzzle. It's a riddle. So Daniel has to unravel this riddle. What do you mean? Counted, mina, shekel, half mina. What does that mean? Verse 26, this is the interpretation. Mene means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Your kingdom it's finished. In other words, the party's over. Your kingdom is done. The head of gold is gone and the chest arms of silver is coming in. It's all good until it's not. The party comes to an end and so does the empire. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, lacking, or deficient. That's what the Bible says, is that Belshazzar, it's like when you're going to weigh something 
You put things in a scale, and so all this is very meaningful. Belshazzar, your life has been put in a scale. Do you measure up? Are you weighty? And the scale says, actually, you're a lightweight, Belshazzar. You think you're great. You think you're important. But on the scales of God, you're a lightweight. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And people try to compare. They think that at the end of time, then when they have to meet God, they're going to be weighed out. And that's how hopefully my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. You know how ridiculous that is? You've done bad things. You don't even know you did them. You thought them. You'd lose count like a thousand times over to try to keep count of your bad deeds and your bad thoughts and your bad motives. What a heavy statement. You've been weighed in the balances. And guess what? You don't measure up. Your righteousness is not righteous. There is none. Perez, your kingdom has been divided. Remember, it's half a mina, a divided mina. And your kingdom is going to be given to the Medes and Persians. Moms and dads, grandparents, let me just remind you something. That when you die, when your days are numbered in terms of on earth, and you've established a little empire, you got savings and all that stuff. And when you die, your kingdom will be divided among your children. And in a lot of cases, beware, because I've watched families fight, come to fisticuffs over inheritances. It's an absolute nightmare. So be careful. The worst thing you can do for your kids is make their lives too easy. So your kingdom is divided. Your kingdom will be divided. So they give Daniel, even though he didn't want it, they give him the gold necklace and all that stuff. And then the last verse, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain that same night. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Remember we talked about the commander of the Navy SEALs, Darius, who had come? Turns out his little troop shows up at Babylon. Everybody's partying. The guards have even gotten drunk, and they left the gates open. The waters of the Euphrates River that helped protect Babylon had been diverted. Previously, some say by Darius, others have other accounts of that. But either way, the waters parted, the gates left open, they waltz into Babylon uncontested. They set up a few of their own guards there to allow the army to come in. They go to the palace where all the guys are drunk, they cut off Belshazzar's head, send it to Cyrus, and say, hey, Babylon is yours, come and get it. That easy, because God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to who he wills.